Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording UFO access. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, Something crawling. The ghost Why? Oh my god! You're listening to Thresholds Radio with John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Dan Stockton talking about the fluoride cover up. Also, Scott Kelly from Ashmore Estates. That and much more on Thresholds Radio. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Today we have joining with us Scott Kelly, who is the owner of Ashmore Estates in outside of a little town called Ashmore in uh, East Central Illinois. And for those of you who don't know, a lot of you probably saw the Ghost Adventures episode, but if you didn't, Ashmore Estates was actually featured on the uh, season premiere of Ghost Adventures this year, so very exciting. It's also going to be featured in a Booth Brothers production, Children of the Grave 2, after many years of production, and that should be out hopefully very soon. Uh, So we're very glad that Scott could join us, and he's going to tell us a little bit about Ashmore Estates and some of the the strange things that have gone on there over the years. Uh, Scott, uh, how how have you been lately? I'm doing great, Mike. Good Good to talk to you again. Great. Uh, for our listeners now, a lot of them may have heard of Ashmore Estates, but they don't know very much about yourself. Uh, can you tell us sort of a little bit about your background, how you got into uh, haunted attractions, and what attracted you to the building originally? Well, I've uh, I've been doing haunted attractions uh, most of my life, and we had done a a haunted attraction at a an Amish park around here and had about a hundred actors at it and the people said that they didn't need our help anymore so uh, I was looking for another place to hold a haunted attraction I checked a bunch of different places around this area it just just to make sure that everybody knows haunted attraction is like the Halloween haunted house you go to um, right and and corn mazes and things of that nature uh, but I was looking for a place to hold our haunted attraction and I tried a bunch of different places and I wasn't being real successful at finding a place and I knew about Ashmore Estates and the thought had crossed my mind years before that 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 would make an awesome haunted house because the place is already really creepy looking and uh, it just has an air about it that that everybody everybody already thought that the place was haunted and and scary so we're better to make a haunted attraction and i was able to purchase it from the person who was owning it oh great and can you give us a little bit of a history of the the building itself uh the building was built in 1960 as the coles county poor farm 
almshouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, an almshouse is a place where the county was able to do their alms for the poor. So uh, it was welfare before there was welfare. And it, it housed... Oh, I think we've, in discussing it, I think we've found that it's housed as many as, uh, the buildings on the property have housed as many as like 53 people. But this one, I've heard that it's housed as many as about 40. And that was that was the intent of this building, was it was built to be a place that people could live at uh, who didn't have a way of making a living or people who had mental conditions and didn't have anybody to care for them or they were already not in a in a hospital or something like that. Uh, and uh, after the the poor farm closed, it was uh, a facility for people, I, I would say for developmental disabilities. Would you think that's an accurate description? Yeah, the, the building was uh, what would have been at the time considered a mental institution and a psychiatric ward or hospital on a small scale, as as I just found out recently, that that it actually had a had been a psychiatric hospital for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's basically um, in the in the last part of its life, which was as as a mental institution, it was a intermediate care facility for the developmentally disabled, or an ICFDD, and those still exist today. They're just a lot smaller than this. This this building was. Uh, meant to house about 47 people as an ICFDD. They had added on to the, the original building to put in a uh, an elevator and uh, to expand and, and make more rooms. Mm -hmm. So you initially bought this just for a, a Halloween attraction kind of thing, like the Funhouse kind of thing, right? That's, that's what I do, is I do um, Halloween haunted attractions. And that was the purpose I bought it. I, and when I bought it, I didn't really know that there was a I really didn't follow the paranormal industry at all right I <laughs> uh, didn't know anything about it and as soon as I had bought it I had all these people coming and asking me if they could investigate the place and I my spiritual belief doesn't have me believing that the place would be haunted and I kind of was of the impression that I wasn't going to allow people to do that but after some soul searching I figured out that the people who are doing this are just trying to find out what's going on so mm -hmm. i changed my mind and let let people come out to do do uh paranormal investigations the place is pretty well known for that you had no idea when you were buying it that you didn't have to make it haunted it already was <laughs> well it's it uh it definitely had a had a long term of people believing that the place was haunted and uh the people were here every night boys would bring their girlfriends out just to scare them or whatever and and there was just people here all the time oh yeah well when i was at uh, eastern illinois university in charleston this was before you purchased the building and i had just heard it was this abandoned insane asylum out in the in the middle of nowhere that's what everyone told me it was and uh so i would go out there and check it out and Naturally, I was curious about the place, so I wanted to find out more about it. But there were all kinds of wild articles about the building in the Daily Eastern News, the college newspaper, where people said that they had found severed pigs' heads in there. There was all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, but there was also a rumor that if you went out there, the owner would come and chase you off with a shotgun. Now, how, how did you manage to, to buy the building from him? Uh, and what, what what was the story behind that? I actually, uh, I had heard that uh, you didn't dare go on the property. My way of doing it was I, I looked for who the owner was and found who the owner was. And I went and uh, tried to talk to him. 
my intent originally was to rent the place. I was going to, for my rent, I was tell, I was going to tell him that I'll clean it up. And then after I'm done renting it, he would have a building that was cleaned up. I never could get an answer from him on what it would take to be able to rent the place. And I, but I did hear a common theme coming out of things that he was saying. And that was that he was frustrated with the fact that, that people kept on breaking the windows and he was trying to put new windows in the place and people kept breaking the windows and kept damaging the place. He'd put windows in one weekend, come back the next weekend, they were all broken. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I heard the frustration and I offered to buy it from him. And through some negotiation, um, I was able to do that. Oh, great. And so after you bought it, did, was there any resistance from the community that you encountered? I know that there were some people who just wanted the place to be torn down. Well, there was. Uh, there's articles written about... Uh, the, the guy who runs the health department in the area, the environmental health side, and that his his belief was the place should just be torn down because it wasn't safe. After we cleaned the place up, I mean, a lot of people felt that the floors were had holes in them, uh, that you could fall through the floors. There were stories about people who had who'd fallen and their legs had gone through the floors, you know. But when we cleaned the place up, we didn't find any holes in the floors at all because the floors are all concrete, including the attic. Every floor has concrete on it. The building is still sitting on a foundation that's good, and the walls, for the most part, are still intact in the shape that they were when they were when they were built. Yeah, it still, seems very structurally sound. Say it's physically fit. Yeah, you didn't have to really replace anything major then, huh? Just cosmetic. No, actually, um, in 2009, we replaced the roof. The, the big the one thing that I saw right when I first came here when I was given permission to come on the property I came one day and uh, the next day that I came it had just been a torrential downpour and I came right after the rain was done but the place was soaked inside the whole entire everywhere there was water everywhere and I knew that that water you know you think about like the Colorado River what it does to the ground. Water does the same thing to buildings, and the water, if I didn't stop the water coming into the building, the water would eventually take the building down. Oh, definitely. So my my biggest thing was I wanted to get a roof on the building, and it took me a couple of years to be able to do that, but now the building's got a new roof on both of the, both the new and the old building have new roofs. On the paranormal side, I know you said you don't really believe in that kind of stuff, but, uh, you know, there's always groups in and out of there. Has anybody found anything that you would consider personally to be credible, something you would believe in, you know, or is it, have you not seen anything yourself yet? Well, um, the I just don't believe that it's what people say it is, okay? That's all. Um, I don't believe that the explanation that's given to it by paranormal investigators is the only possibility, and my own personal beliefs have me i guess i guess i'm just a, a massive skeptic okay well that's good though that's actually because some people are just the opposite the slightest little noise and they instantly go oh my god it's a ghost you know and it's not you got to use your brain think things through right and usually i can i can identify what the source of a noise is at night you know i do tours in the building people come in and i'll i'll do tours for a minimum of five people and i'll do it at any time so except for sundays i mean they, i've had people come at two o'clock in the morning to do a tour so i mean it, and the place is like a movie set. So, I mean, people come here because they watch horror movies and they want to go see a place that could be the set of a horror movie. And this is that kind of a place. So what are the what are the ghosts that people say are in there? I know there's been some 
uh, psychics who have gone through and s said that there was a specific entity there. But, I mean, generally, what are the, some of the personalities that have been placed onto people that have been seen in, in the building? Well, I usually don't answer that kind of question because I feel like that's uh, that takes away... If people are doing a scientific approach to paranormal investigation, you don't want to lead them as to what they'll find or guess what they'll find. Mm -hmm. that, that's actually um, quite true. So I typically don't tell people about the the spirits that have been found in the building. I will tell you that there are four known spirits, um, and this is... I When I say known spirits, I'm saying... This, I'm talking as the people who've come here and giving you what they've told me. Um, we have four known spirits in the building. We have numerous not identified spirits. When I say known, I'm meaning that they've been identified and they have characteristics that many people have found very similar characteristics. Mm -hmm. There's, I have, I have a couple of people who talk about some spirits. I typically have to have, you know, four or five people tell me the same thing before I'll relate it as something that I feel like is credible. Right. Um, I'm really not the one judging the credibility, but if multiple people tell me it, then then there's some credibility just in the exactly the, the fact that there's multiple multiple people saying it. You know. That's about yeah, all you it, have to go by, actually, in something like this. You know, unless somebody gets one of those amazing photos. Otherwise, all you can go by is what people tell you. And if, if they all correspond and these people don't all know each other, then you got to think twice about it. Yeah, well, I've, I have had, I've had multiple things happen that would have freaked other people out in the building. They've happened to me. But because I don't put it down to being something that's scary or something that's haunted, something that's out of my control, something that'll get me... Since I don't put it down to that, the building doesn't bother me at all. I've had, I've heard footsteps in the building that were clear and concise. I mean, it was, it, it, from my point of view, I thought somebody was walking there. I've had, I've, I've heard voices in the building. I heard a lady just, just this last October during the haunted house. I went in there on a Sunday morning to go check a door or something like that and was walking through the first floor and I heard, it sounded like somebody was in a, in a room next to me. I heard a lady, like, speak a sentence. I didn't, couldn't recognize anything that she said. But, it, you know, it's kind of like if you hear somebody in the other room and you're not listening to their conversation. It was like that. It's and kind of convincing, though, if you're the only one in there. That's, I mean, that's not yeah, just a wind. I, I wonder how much our minds play tricks on us, okay? That's true. Um, you know, as a kid... I had my fears about going into my basement. And dang it, if anything that happened while I was in the basement wouldn't get blamed on that fear, you know? Right. So I think that we all come to, when we come to Ashmore States, we all come here with our preconceived notions of what things are. And if you come here and you don't have a lot of knowledge about how the world works, then you will assign noises one of your fears you know so I've, I've had a lot of people investigate the building i've had 43 i think 43 investigations as of now since 2006 and i don't have anybody that i know of nobody has told me that they've left here disappointed people all the time tell me that the place is very active. Uh, I know there's a group there recently from Chicago, and they came back on Facebook and were very excited about all the things that they uh, had captured there. 
Yeah, well, I had, I had a group that uh, came in right after the haunted house had closed. I still had walls up and things like that. And they kind of were expecting to see what they had seen on Ghost Adventurers. And in May, when the Ghost Adventurers were here, we had we had all the walls down and everything in the hallways. So there was a lot of open space. When these people came, there wasn't a lot of open space. And they were pretty disappointed in that and uh, and called me up to vocalize it. I wasn't in town at the time. I had somebody else watching the building. But they were telling me about the displeasure that they had. And when they left, after staying the night in the building, when they left, they told me that, holy cow, that was such an awesome night. So, I mean, none of this is me. I don't do any of this. This is stuff that people see when they go in the building. So I don't have to do any hype about this. All I do is rent the building. No, these right. things hype themselves too, especially with some of these ghost researchers. Not all of them, but some of them, like I say, the slightest amount of noise, and it's instantly a ghost, and they, they tend to get all excited, and one thing leads to another. Well, you know, if everybody, if, if you had watched the Ghost Adventurer show, in the trailer and in the um, real 42-minute show, um, Zach was sitting in the hallway, and... He says that he heard a real big bang and he flew backwards in his chair. I did find that the room that he said the noise came from, part of the ceiling had fallen in that room. And it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it hadn't fallen before he was there. It fell while he was there. Zach really did get scared by something happening <laughs> in the building. The, the people now, when they had reenactments in the show, those were all your actors, correct? They from were. the haunted house. They were. We had. Uh, we have. We have a great group of people who do haunting with us. We have a loyal group of twenty or thirty actors that come back to us every year, and they help us design it. They help us build it. They make props and everything like that. And so we we give them the opportunity to be in anything that's filmed. We asked the Ghost Adventurers if they needed actors to play the dramatizations, and they said yes. And and uh, when when they left, they told us they'd never had anybody give them that kind of support before. Mm. Uh, but we had like 10 actors and we had a makeup crew here. And so all of the, just about all of the dramatization actors were were the Haunting of Elsinore or Ashmore State's actors. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, they, they, um, they had a lot of fun. And we, we then had a, uh, a large party at uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. And we asked them to turn all the TVs on to the show in advance. And we told them we, told them we were coming. And yeah. so all, all the big screen TVs in the Buffalo Wild Wings were on the show. And it was really fun because there was about 100 people there watching. Wow, that's great. I, I, I wish I could have gone to that. I had a little viewing party of my own. And my living room is packed with people. I think that's that cool. that show got a lot of people excited because finally they came to Illinois. They've done a lot of other states. Uh, for for some reason, they've avoided Illinois until now. And of all the places, they went to Ashmore State. So I think that that's very cool. Well, you know, it's, what's funny is they had actually called me two years before that. I was, they called me in October. They said they were coming through this area and they'd like to stop here. And I told them, you know, I don't know that I can do that because they want to come in on a Friday and Saturday. And I'm like, I've got, I've got my haunted attraction running right now. I can't do that. And they said, no problem. We'll, we'll get in touch with you in the future. And something that happened that I didn't know about was a cousin of mine is David Schrader. And David Schrader is pretty well known in the paranormal community. He does, uh, he does a radio show also. This is Darkness on the Edge of, of Town. And uh, as a matter of fact, Mike, you and I have been on that. He's good friends with Zach and with Jeff Ballinger. They did paranormal challenge together david schrader was one of the three people in that 
so David had asked them if they would like to come out here, and he they he said I've I've got a cousin that's got a place, and uh, uh, would you guys like to try it? They called me up, and we made arrangements, and they came out, and it was um, I think that they are fantastic editors. I think uh, Zach is is a genius at the way that he he edits. He he definitely makes a show that people want to watch. Yeah, that's cer- that's certainly true. So so you're happy then with the way the show came out? You thought everything went well? Yeah, for me, I mean, from looking at it from my point of view, I'm looking to to get more people to know about the place, and uh, um, I've had I've had a heck of a lot of people come to investigate because of the Ghost Adventures show. I had three phone calls during the show. I'm sure the TV does wonders. <laughs> yeah. It's such a large audience, and I, I guess they this was uh, episode one of season five, so they've been doing it for a while. They know what they're doing. Yeah, and now this is, th- there's another exciting uh, opportunity for, for Ashmore States to be in a show, right? The, the Booth brothers are finally going to come out with this Children of the Grave 2, and it's going to exclusively feature Ashmore States. Is that, is that correct? Um, no, it's not going to exclusively feature us. We've um, Christopher told me that we'd get about thirty minutes of it. Oh, okay. um, it's it's a it's an hour. Well, if you think about Ghost Adventures, they were about forty-two to forty-six minutes. Mm-hmm. So out of an hour show, there's time in there for commercials. And the Booth Brothers shows are usually about an hour and a half long. So out of the, we'll get about a third of the show. Will be Ashmore Estates. It's called Children of the Grave Two. Uh, you can look up Booth Brothers and Children of the Grave too. There's a lot of hype running around about that right now. The, the Booth Brothers, really nice guys, uh, Christopher uh, St. Booth and Philip Adrian Booth. Both guys are real nice. Kind of, kind of an interesting twist because they look like cowboys, but when they speak, they've got British accents. <laughs> British cowboys, yeah. okay. You don't yeah, see British that very cowboys. often. <laughs> yes, British cowboys. And uh, they've been here twice, actually. And actually, Philip um, is married to a lady that he met here. Ivana is, um, he met her here uh, the first time that they came. Oh, I, so I didn't realize that before. I, she, she was friends with me on Facebook. For, this is now is getting into kind of personal stuff. But she was friends with me on Facebook from my own writing, I guess, that she had, had liked that years ago. And I, I didn't know that she was from Illinois. I thought... They met out in L.A. or something. Actually, I don't think she's from Illinois. I think she's from Missouri. But she had she had liked Ashmore Estates, and uh, and I guess she was she came out here to be a uh, a helper when they came out here, and that's when Philip and and Ivana met each other. Huh. That's interesting. Well, what what is some of the? I, I know you must have had a lot of people tell you some crazy stories over the years of things that happened to them. What what are some of the most interesting that you've heard? Oh wow, some of the most interesting stories of people. There's so many. I'm sure there is actually. And I and I don't I I don't want to. The problem is that 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 kind of is leading for people who would come in the future. Oh, okay, that's understandable. And I have. I don't know why it is, but I just have this break that goes on. I don't want to talk about that. But we've had, I'll tell you, we had um, one of my actors was on the third floor. And we were, this was two or three years ago. And he was trying to fix a switch on a prop that shot air at people's feet. We have about 65 actors in the building. We had at that time about 65 actors in the building. And he noticed that somebody was standing next to him. He saw their feet. You know, he's looking down and he saw their feet. And 
so he looked back at the switch, was playing with it a little more, looked back, and the feet were gone, and he turned all the way around, and there was nobody around him. And he just absolutely freaked. And he was on the third floor. He had to go across the building and down the stairway on the other side to come out to us, and he was visibly shaken. I've seen that happen to a number of people the night that the Booth brothers were here doing an investigation. We had a group, um, International or ISPI, Julie Velasquez's group, was here. And there was a lady named Sherry that was here. And she was walking down the first floor hallway. And she saw my cat come out of one of the side rooms. And she wasn't really paying much attention to the cat. She was looking at something else. and But she, she did look at the cat and saw the cat was looking back up at the doorway that the cat had just come out of. When she looked at the doorway, somebody bent out and looked right at her. And she was, when she came upstairs, she was vis- visibly shaken. I've heard people say that person looked white as a ghost. Well, she actually did. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I want to get out that way. I told Mike before I'd love to go out there and check that place out. We could even record live for the radio if I make it out there too. Well, that would be, we could do something like that. If I can get Mike, Mike's afraid of this kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, if you're talking about Mike clean, he's not afraid of this building. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm always kidding, Mike. <laughs> well, I will say say though you know some of the times when i've been in there by myself i i was always kind of weary to go up on the third floor i always got an unnerving feeling up there well i've got people who have certain places in the building that numerous people have told me there's a couple places in the building that would be considered hot spots i do have some groups that come here and ask me where are the hot spots and i go back to my breaks go on and i well, yeah it's, I won't it's much them. better not to t- tell them i mean i i wouldn't right. want to know myself if i went there to investigate that I don't want you to tell me what's hot and what's not. I want to go there myself and find out. Well, maybe if I was a paranormal investigator, maybe my mind would be different. Maybe I would want more people to see the same things. I would rather have people see what they see without being told what they're going to see. Exactly. No preconceptions. You don't, you know, if you say the third floor closet over there is a hot spot, well, people are automatically going to think they're going to see things there. Right. And I, like I said, I, I have, I have seen things in the building. I've heard things. I've heard, I've heard voice twice, both times it was female, not necessarily talking to me but there's there is youtube videos you can see of what people have put up about ashmore states and there's like i said there's 43 groups that have come out here so there's lots of people who've investigated here and as far as i know everybody's been real happy with it i'm definitely we're gonna have to check it out mike we're gonna have to go up there and we'll record for this show sure well let's talk about the haunted attraction what kind of themes have you done and are you planning on a new theme this year I know every sure. year you try to do something different. We do, we do. We've uh, 2006, the first year you were there. Actually, I got you. You recorded the thing for it. You're the only one who uh, video yeah. recorded it. I appreciate that. The uh, the first year we were Ashmore State's asylum because everybody believed that Ashmore State's had been an, an insane asylum, which is not really part of its history. It was a mental institution, but not an insane asylum. There is quite a difference between the two. This building, after it was a poor farm almshouse, this building then became basically a care facility for people with mental disabilities. Insane Asylum is the kind of place you'd put like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> right. Okay. So it's it an insane asylum is a place that you keep people when you don't want them to get out in the community because they would harm the community. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Ashmore Estates was never that kind of a building. So but but we we like to run on our haunted attractions, you know, they 
obviously are not real. So we like to pick up on the themes that people think. So the first year we were Ashmore State's Asylum. The second year, in 2007, we were Undertaker's Laboratories, which was, we had a storyline about a strain of corn that was killing people. That sounds uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was the laboratory that was creating the strain of corn. Then 2008, we were Macabre Manor. 2009, we were Circus Sanatorium. Anybody like clowns? Yeah, we a had... lot of people are afraid of clowns. I found that out actually talking on the radio. Oh, yeah, there's lots, lots of people are really scared of clowns. And, uh, and our clowns were not necessarily very nice. <laughs> and we've, we've, from that, we've got one actor who's, uh, who's Dr. Gnarls. And Do- Dr. Gnarls has become an institution here. So he's in every year from then on. Uh, like my character is the Spookmeister. And the Spookmeister has been at every one of the haunted houses and will continue to be there. He's kind of like the ringmaster, you know. Then uh, in 2010, we were No Mercy General Hospital. 2011, <laughs> we were... Gosh, we just did that. I'm trying to remember what we called it. <laughs> well, that's, that's okay. Well, that's good. You that's guys are creative too. Every year is different, rather than just doing the same thing over and over and over. Yeah. Well, what are, what are your plans for this year? Give me a second. I'm looking <laughs> up what we were. We were Ashmore State's Institute of Undead. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and I and like when we did um, when we did Circus Sanatorium when we when we came up with Doctor Gnarls, that we had a we had a place called Gnarl Clinic and our. Uh, in this, uh, we we try to pick on one of the local businesses here, and we make them some por- part of our haunt. <laughs> so, um, in in our area, there's a place that's called Carl Clinic. So we had Narl Clinic last year. We were A E I O U, Ashmore State's Institute of Undead, and around here we have E I U, which Mike went to, yeah, which is Eastern Illinois University. And so we we took out of that the E I U from A E I O U, and uh, so we were picking on E I U. Well, I'm sure they appreciated that. Yes, of course they did. Have Have you noticed? Obviously, you probably don't ask everybody, but do you, do you notice a lot of students coming to the haunted house, or is it mainly just locals? Um, you know, I think that our mainstay demographic is the locals. They're the ones who come, and people come from, they're, they're not necessarily all local. We get people from, we're in central Illinois. We're the largest haunted house in central Illinois. We get people from St. Louis, Terre Haute, Indianapolis, and Chicago, and anywhere in between Joliet, Kankakee, and uh, I guess even Rockford. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. But well, it sounds like you got an amazing haunted house there, though. I mean, what you said, 60 actors or so? This, this isn't just no, one of those normal ones. Right. This is, well, Ashmore Estates is, is 15,000 square feet. That's a big building, and it's three floors. You don't want to come here if you're in a wheelchair because we don't have wheelchair access. You do stairs in our haunted house. You have to walk up to the third floor and walk down from the third floor. And do the second floor in between, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, so, someone smashed the elevator a long time ago. Well, the the elevator people took everything out of the building, so there's no there's no copper wiring in the building or anything like that. It was all stolen from the building. I know there was a lot of illicit graffiti too that uh, had to be painted over when you moved in there. There is, and we and we had a, a outstanding graphic artist that came in and he did a number of awesome murals in our building and you can see some of those murals on our website ashmoreestates.net now i know you had other events there what what other kind of events you got flashlight tours you had some overnight things right right and uh, actually i'm i'm in the process of working on uh, on a i'm putting together a documentary on the history of the building 
Mm-hmm. And just yesterday talked to a group that had done a music video in the building, and I was asking them if they would like to score the documentary. So uh, the group's name was Wrecked, W-R-E-C-K-E-D, and Wrecked actually wrote a song for Ashmore Estates, and it's called Mind's Eye. And they and, are from Chicago, right? They're from Chicago, and they're a heavy metal band. And um, the song that they did inside of Ashmore Estates is Enemy. You can Google that also, Wrecked and Enemy, and you will find the video that they did on at Ashmore Estates. Uh, um, my, my totally unbiased opinion of this documentary is that it's going to be really good. Uh, yeah, the, well, the writer I know the writer. The documentary, yeah, is, is excellent. <laughs> did you write it, Mike? Yeah, <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> Somehow I got that feeling. <laughs> yeah, Mike and I just met a couple of days ago to talk about it. Yeah, it's going to be a great project. Uh, and I think hopefully <clears throat> now that all this attention has been brought to the place by Ghost Adventures and by the Booth Brothers and uh, other interviews like with our radio show, I, I think this year is going to be a banner year for the Haunted House. Should be too. Plus, I, I definitely plan on going out there. You're coming with well, me. We're gonna do a. We'll do a recording out there, a live show or something. Yeah, you should uh, uh, do a road trip. Come out here. It yeah, definitely. Like, I'd like to make it in uh, Halloween time too, when you have your uh, haunted house going. Yeah. Now during during Halloween, it's hard to get in here to do paranormal investigation. Well, no, I don't mean for an investigation. I mean just right. as a patron to come by and see your haunted house. Right. Well, we we uh, we have a lot of people who come out uh, the last weekend of the last weekend before Halloween is usually our busiest weekend. Well, we had uh, last October. I did a haunted tour down in Coles County, and we stopped by Ashmore States. I think we had about seventy people. And uh, Scott, of course, is as gracious as always with telling everyone about the building and the history and the stories and stuff like that. So it's always a good time when you go there. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's a lot of stories, and I mean, I do tell people about the spirits during tours. But since this is a paranormal radio yeah. show, I'd rather not mention well, actually, it. On. It's just fully understandable. Plus, it piques their interest. Now, people, yeah, you just want to tease to there tease now. them. Well, well like, we, like I said, there there are four recurring themes as, as far as who might be spirits in the building. And we do have visual pleasure for people, and we have uh, we have yeah. sensory pleasure. I mean, we've got one of the spirits touches people. That's always and I actually too, actually that. had I actually had a uh, sheriff who was working for us, you know, doing security for us um, in 2010, and on Halloween night, he felt somebody. He felt a hand on his back, and he was wearing a Kevlar vest. Okay. <laughs> That's a bulletproof vest. And, you know, you wouldn't you feel, feel a hand, even if somebody touched you, you wouldn't feel a hand. You'd feel pressure on the vest. This was a hand on his back. Wow. So, so has that officer been back to do that duty there since oh, yeah. that day? <laughs> yeah, and he, I mean, he'll, he'll talk about it. He doesn't have a problem with talking about it. Well, there's some it. people actually do that. They enjoy it. But if something like that happens, they actually don't ever want to go back. Well, this guy's, I mean, this guy is, if I ever had a problem, I want, if I ever had a problem and I needed a police officer, I want this guy there. Oh, there you go. Well, John, do you have any other questions for our guest? Oh, not really. I mean, it, I've never been there myself, but I definitely want to go there. I do a little bit of research myself because I do paranormal research too. I'm not just the, the host in the show. So I, I want to go there firsthand and check it out myself. Well, one other thing that we do that, uh, that we haven't talked about at all is um, we have had, we, we do a thing called Night of Insanity. And we allow people to, for a price, come out and spend the night in the building. And we actually... 
Didn't we have you speak one time, Mike? You did. I think it was the very first time that you you did the event. I spoke. Right, right. And um, and my whole idea with the preparation, uh, the things that people see was, you know, we we played white noise. I think that night, and we had Mike speak. The whole idea was to get people psyched about spending the night in the building. And we've done that a number of times. And I think I'm going to start doing that again. But if people have an interest to do that kind of thing, they just need to let me know. Uh, you can find us. You can find out what we do on the website, ashmorestates.net. And, and it's not the .com because the .com goes to a real estate company in Europe. So it's ashmorestates.net. Yeah, I definitely encourage all our listeners to go check that out. And if you're in the area, come out and, and visit the place because it's it's great. It's a good time. Well, make sure you let people know that I'd like them to call me before they come on the property. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's right. Well, I, because I you own a gun to the haunted too. house. <laughs> right. We, well, we, we have people visit the place all the time. It's just I like to know that people are coming. When I first came here, the building had lots of people coming here all the time. And this is private property. And it's not okay to just walk on the property and, and walk around and film or take right. pictures. Not on the property. You can do it from the street, but not on the property. And so I don't necessarily... I'm sure there's some people out there that don't feel like I've been very nice to them. But if you want to come to the property and, and actually take part in it, you need to give me a call. Well, that's only right, you, too. I mean, it's your it's your place. Right, right. And, and some people don't understand that. Some people feel like it's just, some people don't realize that it is owned by a person. Some people think that it is just an abandoned building, and it's far from that. A building's never just abandoned. Somebody always owns it. That's very true. But a lot of people didn't realize that. There is something that I found out from a lot of the police officers here and from farmers that used to happen back in the days when Mike used to go in there. The police officers would park their cars behind the building because people were always out here mm -hmm. and it wasn't okay for them to be out here. So the police would park their cars behind the building and they'd go into the building and they'd wait for people co to come in. And they'd, the police officers would have picked up like a pipe off the floor or something like a piece, piece of brick or something. And they'd chuck it down the hallway towards the door where the people are coming in. And people would fly out of the place. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and uh, it, it happened quite a bit. And uh, I think that it, it helped to create some of the aura that is Ashmore State. Oh, I'm sure. Well, Scott, uh, I appreciate you coming on and sharing everything with us. Uh, it was very, very interesting, as always. And I hope people go and check out the, the website, ashmorestates.net. And we'll put a link up on our site, too. And it was really great talking with you. Thanks, John. I appreciate you, you inviting me on. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. You just heard Scott Kelly. And we will be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. With us right now is Daniel Stocking from the Lowry Southerner Inc., which uh, one of their main purposes is the fluoride cover-up or conspiracy, however you want to put it. How are you doing today, Daniel? I'm fine, thank you. Do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself and your history and uh, just go from there? Sure, sure. Uh, I'm a public health professional, more than, I guess, 23 or so, maybe 24 years. Um, I've been involved in the sort of environmental health and public health interface where those two disciplines um, meet together. 
my background is in working with um, hazardous materials and, and um, biolog biologic agents, radioactive materials, that kind of thing, and also in toxic assessment. And um, I've been working in this for quite a long time um, on the fluoride issue, I should say, sort of because I got pulled into it kind of sideways. Um, this wasn't something I had sort of charted on my career path, but um, it sort of happened that as this thing evolved, we had started up a public health training firm, the Lilly Center, um, outside of Nashville, back around almost eight years ago now. And um, my boss came to me, and she had this rash on her arm that the doctors couldn't get rid of. And she had seen these signs along the side of the road out in the Nashville area there where it says, approved fluoridated drinking water. And she's a very intuitive person by nature, and so she came to me and she said, is it possible that this fluoride water that I'm drinking and making tea with and, and showering showering in, could it be causing a skin rash that the doctors can't get rid of? So I did what I've done hundreds of times in my career. I just kind of backed away from my chemical and, and looked at how it is metabolized or processed in your body and what the target organs are. In other words, where does it wind up depositing in your body? And I looked at the science. This is things that I do normally and what I've done throughout my career. And I was pretty much uh, dumbfounded as this whole thing unfolded because um, I'd worked with a lot of dangerous things in my, in my career, but this one had kind of flown under the radar. And I'd worked even with fluoride compounds, pretty hazardous ones. And But the idea of putting um, fluoride in drinking water, just I've never really thought about it. And frankly, I had never lived until recently in, in a fluoridated area. So I looked at it and I went back and I shared the information with my boss. And she looked at me and she said she didn't feel it was morally right for us to take steps just to protect our own families. So she said, I don't know who you have to talk to, get it turned off. And I didn't know what this meant. I thought this might be a little 5% of my time project for a little while. I had no idea. I was green. I wasn't a politician or anything. I'm just a nerdy science guy who can tell, you know, I, I, when I looked at this, I, I could tell someone was trying to blow smoke up my backside about this issue on fluorides. And, right. and so I started making a few phone calls and doing a few things, not knowing where it would lead. And almost overnight, the project, uh, mushroomed to an international in scope kind of thing. And I began to get correspondence from um, both sides of both oceans and all across North America. And um, so the thing just kind of grew from there. And now the Lilly Center, um, we're kind of known around the world for certain things that we've been involved in. And it keeps mushrooming. And now we're at the place where I'm very glad to say that we see that chloridation the light is at the end of the tunnel. The, the house of cards of water fluoridation is wobbling and it's nearing collapse. And we're working really hard right now to give it a final push. And not just us, there's a lot of other really amazing people working in this effort, but uh, we're close now. And um, we just like to see this thing go away. Well, what's the actual origins of fluoride? How did it start ending up in our drinking water? Well, you know, putting fluoride in drinking water, it, the concept that the American public has heard is that it's to help prevent cavities. A lot of people get, get fluoride mixed up with chlorine. Chlorine is put in the water to kill germs in the water. Fluoride is put in the water to help prevent cavities. It's the only thing that we put in our water that actually is designed to affect change in the human body. In other words, treat or to treat a condition in the human body. So it's a medication for water. That's, that's what you would define medication as, a substance uh, given to you to uh, to be ingested or somehow injected, et cetera, to be taken into the body to affect uh, physiologic change and response. But this, this um, where we get it from is a whole story unto itself. But the purpose of doing it sensibly was to help prevent cavities. The issue, of course, is today, now we know two things, that there's plenty of science that shows that fluoride 
are not, frankly, very effective at preventing cavities where they occur most. And secondly, there are a whole bunch of side effects. Um, the idea that fluoride would only affect your teeth, that just doesn't make any sense at all. So. And fluoride, I mean, actually, I, I always heard, isn't it, a better treatment would be just to rub it on your teeth rather than drinking it. Isn't that true? Yes, actually, you know, that's something that most people have, uh, you know, a greater number of people are finding this out, but the vast majority of the impact of the little impact that fluoride have in preventing cavities, that occurs when it's touching the teeth in your mouth. In other words, there's a topical effect. That's largely the predominant or primary way that it works. That should have, when that news came out, um, it was first kind of noised around around 1999, kind of that general era. Um, that should have ended water fluoridation because the, per, the whole point of putting it in the water was that the, the theory was you had to drink it and it would be systemically ingested and in, incorporated into your teeth as they were forming under the gums, and then they would be strong and cavity resistant. But now we're finding out that the primary way that it helps to prevent a little bit of cavities, not a lot because it doesn't do that much, is it, topical. So the analogy you probably heard is why would you drink ingest a primarily topically acting substance. The, the analogy, of course, is we don't drink sunscreen or sunblock to prevent sunburn. Right. Um, we apply it topically. So if, if you went to your doctor and he handed you a tube of sunblock and said, drink this to prevent um, sunburn, you'd look at him like he was crazy. That's and, true. And <laughs> uh, so this whole idea of, uh, and you're going to find that the people who promote fluoridation, and, and you know, that's where you are in Chicago. That, that's kind of the epicenter, one of the epicenters. The, the American Dental Association is based right there in Chicago. Oh. And they pushed this whole thing. And, um, you know, the other, the real big promoter, of course, is the Centers for Disease Control. But there's some other promoters like the ADA there in Chicago. And um, it's just kind of disturbing to me as, as a public health person to sort of see how this thing has unfolded and continued to be promoted. Well, it's it's pretty well, I can't say 100% proven, but I mean, it's a pretty well-known fact that it is definitely harmful and it's not doing exactly what it's supposed to. I mean, with that being known, what is the reasoning that it's not being stopped? I know that's a hard question, but who's with who's stopping it? You know, we know it's bad. Why is it still being done? Well, that you know what? That question right there, that is probably the key fundamental question. And I, I get asked that question, you know, I, I'm, I receive calls from all over the place, emails from all around the world. And, and here's my sort of, after having done this for almost eight years now, what I've come to the conclusion is the reason that fluoridation continues, that there, there's a primary reason and there's some sort of reason to support that. But the primary reason is, is that it is terrifying to individuals, to society as a whole, to contemplate the fact or even consider the fact that something this harmful could have been missed for this long um, by the very people that we trust, the public health and the medical community. Um, that that's terrifying to people on a subconscious or or even or a conscious level because if it's true and it is um, that they have missed it and it is this horrible, um, if it's true, then then what does that say about who you can trust anymore? I mean, first we found out that you know. I shouldn't say first, but we've heard that a lot of stuff happening in the, in the religious circles. You know, you find out all these sex scandals inside churches and awful things happening um, in the church, Catholic church, et cetera. Um, and so, and, and not just there, but elsewhere in the churches having to do with money and sex and all these kind of things. And so we began to find out that, you know, you can't trust people in the ministry. And then we've been, of course, we've been finding out that you can't trust political leaders, all kinds of things come out about political leaders. And so those people who are supposedly looking out for our interests, and now we're finding out that doctors 
and, and public health people have managed to enable this thing to continue. That's really a tough nut to swallow because and I think you can understand why. Why, If we can't trust doctors, then what's safe and real anymore? Well, beyond that issue, just real quickly, the real sort of practical uh, logistical reason and, and the practical reason that this continues is that people who do know about it are petrified of being embarrassed or sued, bottom line. There is a growing and dawning awareness in the medical and public health and dental communities that, uh-oh, we really stepped in on this one. And you know how things are today. People will try desperately to not avoid, I mean, to avoid admitting that harm has occurred because they're afraid of the lawyers and they're afraid of uh, career embarrassment. So really that's what my assessment of it is. Actually, seems ridiculous too because we know it's bad, and then they continue to ignore it. Well, when it finally does break, there's going to be even more issues because they're going to say, "Well, you knew back then that it was bad, but why did you continue?" Well, that's just it. That's actually one of the things that we've been doing, John. That, that's fascinating that you bring that up because we have, you know, in this era of the internet and, and these kind of things, I don't really grasp how people think that they can keep this hidden. It's just only a function of time. And of course, all kinds of cities now right and left are starting to bail on fluoridation and get out of the whole fluoridation game. And, and major corporations are now backing away from um, fluorides too. Right? We can talk about that if you like. But this idea that why don't they um, admit it now rather than have to be uh, admit it later, it comes down to this issue that people are terrified of this. This is going to dwarf tobacco and asbestos. And I mean, this is huge. This statement I'm going to say is really big, and I'm aware that it's big. But based on my conversations with lawyers across the country and other developments that are happening, this is going to dwarf tobacco to be the single biggest thing ever to hit the United States court system. This is terrible. Why, why, but why do I say that? It's because there's so many different subgroups of people that have been harmed by it. So it's going to be, look out, here come the legal actions, and they're starting now. Yeah. Well, we were talking off air. You and I are both the same age, and we were in the heyday of this. I mean, when we were kids, this, you know, this was like the holy grail, fluoride and water. It was amazing. You know, you'd never have cavities again. No, you're right. This was something that is mom's apple pie, good and safe and all-American. And, and, you know, it was, it was, and to that, and this is really what I call it's sort of like the sacred cow in the public health uh, arena that, you know, you don't question it. It's sort of like don't ask, don't tell. Why would you ever look sideways at fluoride? But, you know, if you know anything at all about and the electrochemistry of fluorides, what they do in the body, how they work, and um, this, this is really kind of a no-brainer. And the very idea that we would tell people, put it in the water and drink of it as much of it as you want, as long as you want throughout your whole life, no matter what other fluoride sources that you have, you're exposed to, and no matter what other your, your predisposed uh, health conditions or other kind of health history you have, and, what, and no matter what your nutritional status is, just keep drinking it as much as you want. That violates very basic fundamental principles of toxicology and pharmacology. And so, you know, like I say, this is a no-brainer. The, the thing about it is, though, that in order to make it go away, for fluoridation to end, there has to be uh, some real steps taken that will take this out of the arena of discussion amongst scientists because, you know, scientists, they can quibble back and forth on all kinds of things. Hey, scientists said the world was flat, right? Yeah. I mean, the world is not flat, and fluoridation is not safe. 
So um, this is something right now that I'm glad to see that we're um, approaching the collapse of fluoridation. Well, actually, before we get too much farther so I don't overlook it, what, how, what ways are there the listeners can do something about this? I mean, can they call or write? or In what ways can they help this fight? Well, there's a lot of things that um, your listeners can do. It kind of depends on what their interests are. I, I will say this, that sometimes I, I get correspondence from around the world, and, and very so many people want to help, and they feel like, well, what can I do? I'm just an average citizen. I'm not a scientist. And I say, well, you know, that's, that's okay, because we don't need this. We have enough science to have already collapsed fluoridation. Fluoridation is not going to collapse um, necessarily because we have more science that suddenly bursts upon the scene. What we've, we've got plenty of science for that now. And as you know, that, and I'm sure you've heard, but you can basically twist the science study any way your predisposition inclines you to do. And I've seen that happen, and it's just a very sad. Scientists, you know, react like science is so objective. No, it's not. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. Frankly, people in the science, people who are not scientists need to know that scientists have biases. They have um, subconscious or conscious objectives that they're trying to achieve. They have a lifestyle they like to maintain, salaries they want to maintain, et cetera. So um, there are some specific things that could be done. Uh, maybe before I, I share a couple of those things, um, there, I mean, it sort of ha- I think it might be useful to set the stage a little bit about um, some of the groups that have been harmed and, and some of the legal things that are happening. It, it, would that be okay to do? Or? Yeah, that's fine. You, I mean, we want all the information we can get, actually. That's the purpose of having you here. We need this uh, out here in the public and clear, valid information. Well, yes, I, I'm so glad that you're working to educate folks because there is a lot of um, information that's available today. And, and I'll say this, um, I've seen the fluoride promoters, they like to say that anything that comes off the Internet is, is hokum. They like yeah. to say it's just junk science and all that. And, well, there may be some junk stuff that's out there. Yeah, there probably is. And there's also in, in the normal so-called arenas of, of all other science disciplines, there's junk stuff that's out there. But there are some real basic almost kind of common sense scientific things that have come out now that you really can't argue against. And really, these are the things that we like to talk to people about. And, and I think that people who really understand where this is heading and see that there are certain groups that are harmed and that, that this is really, you don't have to be a scientist to be effective in this. I've seen very small groups, even individuals in certain communities, collapse a whole fluoridation um, program simply by their dedication to it and by their getting smart about it. And that's what you're about here today is you want to get people smart about the, what the facts are. I think Correct. that's really cool. What, the, what exactly, when it comes down to it, the health, you know, from a scientific point of view, what does it do to the human body? You know, how bad is it? What's the cause and effect? Well, um, I suppose the best way to, to look at it is, is that um, fluorides, because of their properties that they have, they're kind of like the big gorilla on the block. Uh, they're they're um, electron scavengers. What that means is if they go around saying they take a look and they're they're eyeing the electrons and other atoms and and, and they are uh, willing to basically uh, scavenge those electrons. And what that does is it creates a domino series of events in your body. And so, um, give an example. For instance, um, a lot of the fluorides that are as you, as we speak here right now. Inside your body and inside my body are a little bit half, less than half of all the fluorides that you've ever ingested are still somewhere in your body. 
And um, what does that mean? Uh, well, your your body tries to get rid of fluoride because we only need a very tiny trace amount of it. But there are certain places where you have calcified tissues in your body where the calcium and the fluoride are going to look at each other and say, hey, let's get together. And so it's going to bind and you're going to wind up with fluoride deposits. And, and you're going to see that in your bones and joints and also in your pineal gland in your brain. And that's very disturbing that actually the highest concentration of fluoride uh, in the human body here in America is, from what the science shows us now, is up in your pineal gland. That's really kind of disturbing when you think of all the things that your pineal gland uh, is involved in. Um, but it also shows up, of course, in deposits in your bones and joints. Now, why is that important? Well, one of the key things is, is that, uh, and the National Research Council alluded to this in 2006, the National Research Council of the National Academies of Science, a real prestigious group, they said that we need to do some research on um, the immune effects, your immune system from fluoride. Because guess what? Fluoride deposit in your bones where your immune cells are generated. And that's pretty sobering when you think about it. Um, but beyond that, there's other kinds of impacts. For instance, if you're a kidney patient or you're a diabetic, uh, that NRC, the National Research Council, in 2006, they said that kidney patients and diabetics are what they call susceptible subgroups that are particularly especially vulnerable to harm from fluoride ingestion. Mm-hmm. So if you have anyone out there who has um, any of your listeners that have kidney stones or chronic kidney disease or are on dialysis or are... Um, you know, there's several kidney transplants. There's several different kinds of things that involve the kidneys. Um, or you might be a caregiver for someone who has that. Um, it's very, very disturbing. Um, in 2008, um, we had kind of launched some efforts, and we kind of uh, backed the National Kidney Foundation into a corner, and they wound up removing their endorsement of water fluoridation. And um, it was kind of disturbing, actually, how that whole thing came about because I was sent a position statement, a, doc, a piece of paper from them, uh, a few sheets of paper on what their stance on fluoridated water was in 2007. They sent it to me, and I looked at the thing, and it was written on what looked like a typewriter. Uh, it was so old. Oh, well, and, that's good. <laughs> uh, and so I contacted them, and we talked to some other folks, and they contacted them, lawyer contacted them. And anyway, they wound up, the, the American Dental Association has a thing on their website called a compendium. It's a list of organizations that they say, have lent their name to endorse water fluoridation. And the Kidney Foundation name was on there. Well, the Kidney Foundation required had their name to be removed off that list. So they no longer endorse fluoridation. Now, on the other hand, if you read their stance, their new paper, it was kind of kind of a strange document in a lot of respects because it had some inconsistencies in it. But the bottom line is, is they removed their endorsement of water fluoridation. Well, why? Well, because the National Research Council, one of the reasons was they actually admitted that um, when fluoridation started, you know, 50-plus years ago, nobody bothered to look what it would do to kidney patients in a real thorough way. Nobody looked at it. And, and so now we know that kidney patients and even diabetics, um, diabetics tend to be really thirsty. So what does that mean? You ingest more fluoridated water, which means more of it uh, deposits in your, um, in your body and you have more of these um, other effects. So the kidney patients, it's an issue to damage to the kidneys as opposed to your bones because when you can't, and you can't pee it out as well because your kidneys don't work as well, mm-hmm. then you wind up getting more of it depositing uh, in your bones. But then the very thing, like if you have kidney stones, um, what do they tell you if you have kidney stones? Drink a lot of water. 
Right. But then the very thing that you drink to prevent the kidney stones can harm the tissue in the kidneys around where the stones would form. So those are some very disturbing things. And I would we mentioned a few minutes ago about people getting involved. Right. If any if anyone is uh, in in your listening audience is a kidney patient or a uh, diabetic and uh, or a caregiver for one of those two groups. Um, these are the kind of folks we need to speak out to hold the kidney patient, uh, foundation, National Kidney Foundation, and other groups accountable for not warning openly. Because the kidney foundation, is another story I could tell you. But the bottom line is, if you ask any, take a group of hundred kidney patients, and I've asked a lot of them, and ask them what they know about fluoride, virtually none, almost all, would say never heard a word about it. That's an outrage, and considering me, that's so counterproductive for their disease. I mean, that, that should be part of their medical treatment. A doctor should explain to them not to have fluoride. Well, yes. I mean, from my perspective, my opinion, I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be. I'm a public health professional. And, you know, um, I can tell you this, that um, there's a reason the Kidney Foundation yanked their endorsement of fluoridation. You can draw your own conclusion. Right. So, well, um, you know, lawsuits, et cetera, that would be my sort of feeling about it. Isn't it also, I, I was reading too, that it's extremely bad for younger children too, where they say you shouldn't have it in like baby formulas and all that. You should not use your tap water. Well, absolutely. And that's a whole other issue that's kind of fascinating. I don't know if you're, you're, you might want to do this, and I encourage others to do this who are listening to this. Go down to one of your or retailers like Target or something like that, and uh, they sell a bottled water there by Gerber. It's called Gerber Pure. Mm-hmm. And it's really great that they have this bottle of water now. It's unfluoridated. And they're selling it specifically so that parents of young babies won't use um, unfluor- won't use fluoridated tap water for making their baby's milk formula. That's the reason that they sell it. And they're concerned about something called dental fluorosis. And, um, and the, it's a staining of the teeth that lasts your whole life. It's caused by overexposure to fluoride at, certain, uh, at a young age. And... Um, so here's what you've got is you've got Gerber of all companies, Gerber selling an unfluoridated bottle of water specifically so that moms and dads and other caregivers um, won't have to use fluoridated tap water for making baby formula. But how many people who are listening to this either don't know about that or maybe don't have the money to buy, you know, bottled water. They're already paying for their tap water bill and all that kind of thing. Um, and just to me, that's really disturbing. The other thing is, is that if you also go to a store like that, like maybe Target or something, they've got uh, these things called toddler training toothpaste now. Have you seen those, John? No, I haven't seen that. It's fascinating. Um, there's three brands that I've been looking at. There may be more. One of them is Oragel, Colgate, and Aquafresh. And like I have one in my hand here um, from Oragel, it says uh, training toothpaste for toddlers. And right on the front of it, on the box, it says, Safe if swallowed, fluoride free. So, so, so they know it's bad for us. I mean, they're writing it right there. Well, they're trying to, my opinion, they're trying to quietly back out of the room of fluoridating, providing fluoridated products for certain populations, meaning the babies in their formula. Right. And, and this issue of, and it says that on all three, fluoride free, safe if swallowed, on all three of those brands of toothpaste for toddlers. Well, what does that mean? That they weren't safe for the ones who used it prior to this coming out? What about, you know, all of our era and all the kids, you know, since you and I were uh, Yeah, because, I mean, we were, it was, like I say, it was the miracle thing when we were kids. 
Well, I find that this is actually a really fascinating show and tell item, and I encourage people take this, uh, go go down to one of these stores and and uh, get you know Oragel or, or Colgate or whatever. Oragel, I like it because on the back of the box, they actually have a statement right here, which is fascinating. They talk about um, uh, swallowing too much fluoride can cause fluorosis or white spots on your children on your child's permanent teeth. Um, and that's the reason, of course, they're not doing this. It's to prevent something called dental fluorosis, which if, you're, if your listeners have never seen pictures of dental fluorosis, I know that we're on a radio, so it's a little bit hard to maybe visualize it. <laughs> Use your imagination. But, but, but most people have seen people who have these uh, white or yellow kind of streaks or spots, usually on their top front middle teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people know someone like that. Maybe themselves they have it. They're kind of like, well, where'd that come from? And unfortunately, a lot of people think they just have poor dental hygiene or something like that, and they don't. And you know, they don't know that fluoride actually gets ingested when you're between the age of zero and eight in that uh, arena. There, that time frame, it can create this staining on your teeth, and it's very disturbing because um, if fluoride do this to the hardest surfaces in your body, which are your teeth, what what do you think is doing to your soft tissue? Yes. And uh, so, in kidneys and thyroid glands, and and the whole issue of thyroid harm is a whole other issue because so many people, particularly ladies today, um, have hypothyroidism, and I think they at least need to find out what the science is about fluoride uh, relating to the thyroid. But the, the these show and tell items that I mentioned, getting a, a gallon jug of Gerber Pure Pure Water, or maybe some of this Oragel um, toddler training toothpaste, you know, and you take this and you actually show it to your representatives, or you show it to your um, uh, water district uh, managers, et cetera, or your board members. Um, this is this is real public stuff now. And you know, if if major corporations are backing away from fluoride, like the National Kidney Foundation and these big companies with the toothpaste, et cetera, I think people ought to sort of be able to see where this is heading pretty easily. I agree. Did you? I don't know if this. Like I said, I saw this on the internet, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. But I'd heard something about they wanted to. Bottled water companies to start including fluoride. Was that true, or is that just a crazy internet thing? No, there there are bottled water companies that deliberately add fluoride to them under the guise of it's you know good for you and all that and and helps prevent cavities, etc. Um, you know, there's this feeling, there's this idea out there still in many places that fluoride is good and safe, and and so people see it as a marketing tool as, as sort of an added benefit to their water. So some people actually deliberately add it, which is really what the water utilities are doing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for babies, um, a baby is has a very small body that's rapidly, the cells are rapidly dividing and growing. So they're more sensitive to the effects of the fluoride. And also, babies' kidneys, they just can't handle fluoride the way adults do, and even adults. You know, if, if you're uh, a person with kidney disease, mm-hmm. everybody told slightly less than half of all the fluoride, if you've got normal kidneys, they're functioning just normally. You're still going to retain a little less than half of all the fluoride you ingest somewhere in your body. And uh, if your kidneys don't work well, then you, you get into this terrible cycle where you start ingesting, you ingest it, and more and more of it starts being retained in your body because you just can't get rid of it, can't pee it out. So it won't so, just be the babies either. I, I assume it'd be when you get older too. You know, when you absolutely. start having kidney problems, the fluoride's going to affect you. And, and what happens if you happen to be someone who is kidney patient and diabetic, um, you know, then you start wondering, well, are there additive effects? Uh, is the harm accelerating? And, you know, that's what's so disturbing about this. The, the first legal action 
are starting um, on the health issues, they're starting on dental fluorosis. And I was going to say that if any of your listeners have a chance to look at their own teeth or their children's teeth, and if they see these funny white, yellow, sometimes even brown stains or spots or streaks on their teeth, um, and they're not smokers or anything like that, um, or if the children, you know, have those, um, I really recommend they go see what these pictures of dental fluorosis. I don't know. I can give you our website. We have plenty of pictures there. Yeah, you um, definitely want to give your website information out, too. You can do it now, and we'll do it on the end of the show, too. Sure. Um, our, it's a real simple website address. It's spotsonmyteeth.com, www.spotsonmyteeth.com. And um, we did something that had never really been done before. We decided to wade into an urban area in Atlanta in the Centers for Disease Control's backyard and start showing pictures of dental fluorosis to people and say, hey, uh, do you, you have this on your teeth? Do you know someone who has it on their teeth and do you know what caused it? It was the darndest experience, just the most amazing experience to see and disturbing, very disturbing to see the ignorance of how people's eyes would just say, whoa, wait, wait a minute, my brother has that, I have that, my son, my daughter has that. And they they I they have all these things that even their dentist would tell them oh uh, it's some other cause or something like that. Uh-huh. So and you know there's a reason that cosmetic dentistry is the fastest growing segment of the dental industry right now. A lot of people you see all these things about teeth whitening and all this kind of stuff. Well, in some cases, in many cases, people are seeking these veneers you know that you can put on your teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really expensive, but. The, the rub is, is that the classification system for dental fluorosis is, is rigged. No other way for me to say it but to say it's rigged. It's meant to diminish the, the impact. Uh, there are different classes that can be called very mild, mild, moderate, or severe. Uh-huh. And, and the way they do it is um, in order to get any of those classifications, you have to have at least two teeth with that staining on it. So if you happen to be a person with one of your teeth, let's say your top middle one, uh-huh. There, it's really visible. Everybody can see it, and you don't have dental fluorosis because it's only on one tooth. It doesn't. It, it doesn't matter if it's just on one tooth, huh? Right. And they also don't tell you that very mild or mild can be on on eight or ten teeth or more. In other words, the condition is not um, tied to the sheer number you have on the on the uh, on the end of how many are involved. You might have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve teeth with this staining on it. And it can still be very mild, quote unquote, because it covers less than 25% of your tooth, uh, of the second worst affected tooth. What they do is they take the second worst affected tooth and they make the diagnosis based on that. Not your worst affected tooth. That's actually ridiculous. My gosh, it should just be if you have one of any type. I mean, that should be it. That's why if you go to the website, um, you can see samples of, of what it looks like in different forms and some people, they have these little, on the tips of their teeth, just these little white ridges kind of right on the biting edge. I've, I've actually got that. And, and I, you know, I've seen this, and, and it, that can be called very mild, you know. And, and, um, but the rub is, is it can be on two teeth. Or you might, I, I have a little girl that, uh, anyway, long story is I get a lot of people that now more, not a lot, I should say a growing number of people who are calling saying, my child has this or that on their teeth. And on our website, people can send us a photo of their teeth, and we can send it over to a dentist and get it diagnosed. Uh, you know, I'm not a dentist; I'm not allowed to diagnose, and I don't attempt to do that. But um, I think most people who have seen the sheer amount of it that I have seen, uh, you get a pretty good idea of these. Is, uh, 
the extent of it. Here's something really disturbing. Um, in 2010, let's see, I guess it was the end of 2010, um, they had a, uh, the, the National Center for Health Statistics said that not released some info, this is from the CDC, that 41% of 12 to 15-year-olds now have this staining on their teeth. Wow. 41%. And the really bad stuff, the stuff is like, if you look at it, you kind of almost recoil. Some people might feel uh-huh. they don't want to recoil. Uh, it's on like 3.6% of the um, children's teeth, of the teen's teeth. And, and um, to me, that's, you know, this, this is, they, they get away with it. They call it just a quote, cosmetic defect. But that's all going to collapse in the courts because all kinds of people are going to say, hey, you know, it causes economic harm to me. I have to pay to get veneers in my teeth. And, and like this one girl who's in a legal case now, it might cost her over $100,000 over a lifetime um, just to get her teeth taken care of that's because re- of this to keep it That's breaking. ridiculous. You know, I'm going to so, have to, I have to go to your site now too because uh, my two front teeth, my top front teeth on the very bottom edge, or well, like white bands, I've never been able to figure out what in heaven's name they were. But from what you just said, I think I know what they are now. Yeah, it's, it's a, um, and, and the thing that's really kind of, as I say, really kind of makes you think, this is this is an outer biomarker, something visible that you can see. What about the stuff you can't see? Right. You know, the, the that's occurred up in your brain. Uh, the Chinese, you know, a lot of places around the world, they won't fluoridate, wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. They know better. Actually, that's what I was going to touch on, too. Uh, worldwide, other countries, what are their views on this? Well, um, there's different. It's largely the U.S. and Britain-influenced countries that continue to promote fluoridation because they have strong dental societies. Um, the thing that's disturbing for me, again, is that Dentists are trained about stuff that happens in your mouth. What business is it of dentists tell you that, oh, this is not going to harm your thyroid, no matter what your health conditions are, this isn't going to harm your kidneys, no matter what your history of exposure is. Dentists have expertise in the mouth. And we did something, uh, we got some information sent to us, which we released. Um, a gentleman did a Freedom of Information Act request to the Centers for Disease Control, mm-hmm. and he asked for the names, titles, and job descriptions of everybody inside CDC who was responsible for or had input into CDC's decision to support fluoridation. Real simple kind of idea. Who is it that, you know, provides input? Who is it that does the studies or analyzes or makes statements, whatever? Guess what? Guess what came back? Hmm. One job description, one title. The, che- the, the head of the oral health division of CDC. In other words, no toxicologists, no diabetes experts, no kidney professionals, no, no people with expertise in minority health issues, any of that. What you've got is, is one person, the director of the oral health division since around 1975, has basically been responsible for this thing to be continued. So what you've got is a very small group of people today are responsible for, and the public doesn't know this, they think that all these people have done all this research and looked at all these kind of angles about how safe fluoride is, is it unsafe, is it safe, how much are we getting, et cetera. Hasn't been done. It's been uh, the National Research Council documented volumes of really basic research. It's never, ever been done. That's and yet ridiculous. They make, this, they make this statement. CDC has made this statement that more than 60 years of research um, shows fluoridation to be safe. So, um, what, the, what is that? That's part of the fluoride gate scandal. 
Um, there's a scandal unfolding now, and it's been dubbed a fluoride gate. We actually had coined that term back in 2008, and now a lot of people, a growing number of people, are saying, well, we need to have fluoride gate hearing. Um, we need to really look into this whole scandal, and, and journalists are getting interested in it. And that's another thing that your listeners can do is if they know anyone who is in the, in the media, such as yourself, uh, or print journalists, television, et cetera, have them just do a Google search for fluoride gate, just one word, and uh, or contact us, and um, we can, you know, I can give them a lot of information. This Freedom of Information Act stuff that came out shows, and get this, the oral health people there inside CDC, mm-hmm. you, what group do you think they're very strongly tied to who maybe perhaps you might say influence them? That's the dental trade industry. Huh. So, so what business is it that dentists have of, tele- of analyzing the research on whole body health effects of fluoride? It's, I don't think they have any business doing that. None at all. It's ridiculous. If anything, maybe they should say that you should have some sort of powder you put on your teeth by yourself, but not be drinking it throughout your entire body. No, I, I mean, that just violates fundamental principles of toxicology uh, and pharmacology. And so, you know, this, there's, there's so many angles on this. It's really, and, and what's really kind of disturbing is, is that the public health service people, health and human services, they, they recently, uh, I should say about a year ago, they decided to lower the amount of fluoride in water. And all these years they had said, it's great at one part per million, small amount of water. Don't worry about it. And now all of a sudden they had this revelation about a year ago that they're going to lower it a little bit. Sure. Well, why did they do that? Well, most people don't know the reason why is um, EPA was just about to be sued by three groups. And it was going to be really ugly. And they desperately did not want to go on the witness stand. So they thought, well, let's just go ahead and... So they thought, well, let's just go ahead and CDC and HHS, they said, we'll just lower it a little bit. And they said, that's the way we'll address the dental fluorosis issue. But it doesn't address the dental fluorosis issue. Um, you don't want to give fluoride in drinking water for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and, you, and there's still going to be people who get dental fluorosis, even with a slightly smaller amount. Is it originally true, I had read this before, that uh, when they first started doing this, fluoride was a, a byproduct of industrial waste or something. It used to have to be disposed of like a toxic chemical. And then they started deciding, well, we'll throw it in water instead. Is, is there truth to that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that um, it has kind of a long history as to how it originally, what kind of fluoride. There are different forms of fluoride compounds that have been used over the years. Uh-huh. Today, Today, the vast majority of it comes from a collected air pollutant emission. They have these things that you can do where you can collect stuff on their way up through smokestacks. You spray water in, you can collect this stuff, and and it prevents air pollutants. But um, the vast majority of that for quite a while now has been something called hydrofluorosilicic acid, which is basically a uh, fluoride, very, very dangerous um, uh, liquor, they call it, that they collect out of these air pollution scrubbers. And, um, you know, the stuff, you can't, you can't dump that stuff in, in international waters. You can't put it in a lake. You can't drop it. You can't put it in the river. But you can slowly dip it into the public water supply. And they put it in our water? I mean, you can't put it anywhere, but they put it in our water. What, what in heaven's name? Well, because, you know, they, the idea was they thought it would be a win-win. We won't emit it into the environment and pollute the environment through the air pollution and and uh, this way will help prevent cavities too. But what they don't, what they don't tell you is, is, of course, 99% or more of the fluoride that's in city water 
doesn't go into your body, even if it was effective. It goes gets flushed down the drain, right, through your shower drains and through your laundry and all right. that. So it winds up getting dispersed into the environment. Um, and, of course, um, it, it creates this issue in the human body because we can't control the dose. Um, you know, you hear a lot of people say, well, it's such a small amount of water. Well, that, they're mixing some, they're, they're different, there's a difference between concentration and dose. And that's the issue. A concentration may be small, meaning how much is in the water. But if you happen to be one of those people like diabetics or others that drink a lot of water or just get fluoride from other sources, then your, your dose may be, for you, a concern, even though you have a small concentration in the water. Well, year, years and years of it, too, though. I mean, it's not as if you're just doing it once. My God, you know, 30, 40 years of drinking it. Well, here, here's an example of something to keep in your mind. Go to your sink. And get yourself a, a you know a decent sized glass of water, maybe uh, twelve ounces or something, or maybe a little bit more, and uh, and look at it. And then you get your regular toothpaste tube, a fluoridated toothpaste, and they say use a pea sized amount and spit it out. Well, the amount that they want you to spit out in the pea sized amount is in your large glass of water. So wow. you have to spit it out in toothpaste, but you can drink it in water. That that the exact that makes- same amount. Well, so, um, well, actually, speaking of toothpaste, I wanted to hit on that. Fluoride in toothpaste, is that okay or is that actually bad too? Well, there's there's several different sort of... Um, in toothpaste, at least you spit it out. But the issue is, is that toothpaste has a, uh, a very high concentration of fluoride in it, large amounts of this stuff. And so you can't tell me that you don't absorb some of that through the mucous membranes of your mouth even if you're religious and spitting it out. And uh, a lot of people, of course, the children uh, until below at a young age, a lot of children don't have a well-developed swallowing reflex. Mm-hmm. So that's why they have these toddler training toothpaste now, because it's known that children are going to swallow a lot of this stuff. It also doesn't make much sense that they tell you to spit it out, but then they flavor it like bubble gum and they put little um, stars and fairies right. and unicorns all over it. And what do you expect a kid to do, right? He's used to swallowing stuff that tastes sweet and good. So um, my opinion, uh, this is only my opinion, and you know everyone needs to educate themselves about this, but Correct. I recommend that people get an unfluoridated toothpaste. Um, and, uh, you know, remember, lack of fluoride does not cause cavities. Too many sugars on your teeth and poor nutrition, et cetera, and lack of access to dental care and oral hygiene. These Correct. are the things that cause cavities. Because I actually wanted to clarify that because I wasn't sure if toothpaste fluoride was good or not. So that's a good one. And other thing, isn't there fluoride in other products too? All kinds of things have fluoride in them that you don't know about? Absolutely. Um, There's a lot of, uh, you know, when you go to the store today and you buy a loaf of bread, uh, well, in many cases, they actually make the bread with fluoridated water. So when you take a bite of your bread, you're getting a dose of fluoride. Um, a lot of times, you know, canned foods, uh, processed foods, they're going to have fluoride in it, but they don't have it on the label. So um, you, you're getting this, the, the term for it is um, multiple source overdosing because you don't know, I can't tell you how much you ingested last week or yesterday. Um, the Department of Agriculture has this list of fluoride content in a small number of foods. Um, but, you know, for babies, they get it in their juices. Sometimes they get it in chicken sticks. Very disturbing if you read about chicken sticks. Oh, yes. They grind up, like, I guess, accidentally some of the bones from the chickens. And so the bones of the chickens have collected fluoride. 
And so the chicken sticks have a, that's one of the higher sources of fluoride. And so of course the kids get it in juices made of fluoridated water and, and, you know, they're getting in a lot of different sources. So, you know, this is where this kind of information, a lot of this information that is really, like I say, it's a no brainer. The trick is to channel the, the information to the people who have the authority to actually end fluoridation. And, and, you know, in, in my mind, what that has to do is we have to educate people who are, um, uh, you know, who are like water district leaders and also people uh, who are political leaders who can um, have fluoride gate hearings or that, and who are willing to, you know, take on the American Dental Association. Yeah, who have the nerve to do it. That's the big issue. So many politicians don't want to do this stuff. And, you know, I, I, you know, for me, I'll just say this, you know, I haven't had a salary in over seven years. Um, I'm just doing this because, you know, we started up that company and, you know, some things and, and, and it suddenly this thing sort of grew and, you know, it was taking 95 or hundred percent of my time. And so of course there went my salary, but some things in life, I, I just kept doing it because I just felt like all my whole life has trained me and prepared me to do this. Mm-hmm. And for my own family's sake, um, you know, there's, I, I would not be able to not do something about this. This is something that when it's over with, we're going to look back on it and say, wow, I can't believe this went on that long. But um, I I do want to mention, too, you know, um, if there's anyone out there that um, is a person of means or knows a person of means who wants to get involved, there's an opportunity now to actually collapse this whole thing once and for all. And it would really happen a lot faster, I think, um, if some folks would like to sink in a little uh, sort of a legacy contribution or gift, if you will. Um, to do this um, because um, the other side is, is very well funded and they, they get away with certain statements because the people who are working to end this, it's not just us, there's plenty of really great groups, um, but we're just doing this, you know, a lot of people are part-timers at it or they don't have any funding and, you know, things like that. Uh, my boss mortgaged her house um, and she's never gotten that money back and she's not a wealthy person. I maxed my credit cards. And um, we just live very simply down to one car and a little two-bedroom apartment because some things in life are just worth taking a stand on. uh, My conscience would not allow me to have not done this. And that's not to sound like it's all noble. It's just the way it is. Um, This is knowing, and you know the toxicity of fluorides relative to other compounds. This is a really dangerous thing to be taking into your body. And it creates synergistic effects with other compounds and other things that you're exposed to like lead or aluminum. So, um, it potentiates or makes more harmful those other exposures. What have been the, the long-term effects for, like I say, people in our age group that have been having it since we were kids, is there anything that's showing, you know, how much worse it is for us since we've had it our entire lives? Well, the national research council talked about the fact that there is likely an increase in hip fractures at four parts per million which the other side likes to say that that's such a huge amount compared to one part per million that we've been exposed to, but they forget that uh, we get fluorides from a whole bunch of sources. And um, there's, there's, the other side likes to say that, oh, nothing's ever been proven. There's no, uh, no health harm ever been proven. And I'll be the first to tell you, fluoride exposure does not cause everything known to man. It doesn't. Right. But there are certain things that it does cause. And, and the, other, the rest of the world, uh, places like China, they won't touch fluoridation with a 10-foot pole. India won't do it. 
they, they've already figured it out because some of their areas have high fluoride content in some of their wells and their, in their water tables. And they've seen these people bent over with skeletal fluorosis. Um, and, you know, we have uh, joint, you mentioned long-term exposure. Many people today go to their doctor and they've got joint pain or stiffness. And if your doctor doesn't know that anything at all about something called early stage skeletal fluorosis, mm-hmm. and it's all probability, he or she doesn't, um, you can be diagnosed as having, quote, arthritis. And then they start giving you all these drugs and other things like that. Right. When really, perhaps what you've got is the first painful stages of skeletal fluorosis. And the other side likes to say, well, we have never, that's hardly ever been diagnosed in the U.S. or we never see it. Well, it's one of those things that if you don't look for something, of course you don't find it. Right. Um, or it's been misdiagnosed as something else. Yes. And there's a lot of things that fluorides, you know, we're exposed to a lot of things in our environment, not just fluoride, of course. Um, but I think that um, given what we do know about fluorides now, to just continue this practice basically because the political spectrum, those the folks on both sides of the aisle don't have the political will to call into question the American Medical Association or the Dental Association or the CDC. Um, you know, CDC has been called on the carpet for some really awful, real blunders they've made recently. You know, you've heard these things they've done, like the business of lead in Washington, D.C. water. Right. Um, you know, the... the um, that tuberculosis traveler and, you know, all these other kinds of things where they just, or the, the Katrina formaldehyde trailers. Remember that one? Oh yeah. That, um, that got quite a bit of publicity. That was, that was just really basic science. I mean, that just shows you that they can take uh, simple science and try to intermix policy with it and gum it all up. <laughs> well, I think when science is mixed with, business corporations and money that's a bad mixture because then your your outcomes can be completely tainted because your scientist is getting paid by this corporation so they they gotta look that way right well they there's there's financial reasons i mean real good reasons why people are uh i think trying to make the fluoride issue go away quietly or or dispose of a in other words turn a problem into an asset you know, the definition, most people don't know the definition of waste is when a thing does not have economic value. So if you can sell this stuff you collect from the air pollution scrubbers to somebody and drip it in the water, then it has economic value. You don't have to treat it like hazardous waste. You know, just right? that statement right there, Daniel, something that comes from the air pollution scrubbers and put it in water. What the hell? I mean, that, that right there alone describes the entire problem. <laughs> well, and that, see... We have contorted things in order to do this. People, remember I told you at the very beginning that this is very hard for people to grasp, that, that it's terrifying to admit that, that our health people could do something like this, miss right. this harm. Um, and the vast majority of doctors and dentists, they just literally have never looked at it close. The ones who have looked at it, they get, in many cases, they get really concerned, like, whoa, what is this? The first thing they think of is, am I liable? Did I prescribe this fluoride supplement or did I uh, not tell them, uh, kidney patients about this or that? You know, that's the very first thing many people are concerned about. And I think health trumps all those considerations. Oh, I agree. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the issue, for instance, we broke the story nationally that blacks and, and Hispanics are disproportionately harmed by fluoride. Um, 
and particularly on the blacks issue, um, because we um, black Americans, uh, the Centers for Disease Control have released some information uh, buried in the back of this document that most Americans would never see. They showed that um, uh, black Americans and Hispanics have um, more of this dental fluorosis of all types than Caucasians. Oh, that's interesting. And we got we got some people involved, and you're in Chicago there, and 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 I think that the inner city populations, minority and otherwise, uh, and particularly low income communities, they really need to weigh in on this. There are going to be legal settlements. There are going to be legal cases happening. And what we're looking for now are people who have dental fluorosis who would like to get hooked up with an attorney and pursue legal action, um, you know, or people who have kidney disease who want to really push this or diabetics, et cetera, um, because we really need people to get put under oath and they don't get put under oath unless there's a hearing or a court case. And so if um, any of the folks that are your listeners there uh, know people who have the stains in their teeth, have them call me or, or email me. I mean, I can give you my email address or phone number. I don't know how you want to do that, but um, uh, it's up to you. You can give them both. It doesn't matter. Are there, are there like group action lawsuits, you know, happening now that people in, need to call to be added to, you know, that type of thing? We're still in the early stages of litigation. Um, there is a, currently there's a case happening um, um, where this one bottle of water manufacturer and some other folks who have fluoride in their food, uh, two, two companies are being sued, in other words, um, because uh, of this young girl who uh, she got these stains on her teeth on, I don't know, it's like 10 or 12 teeth, something like that. And she's going to need these veneers put on her teeth at a major cost. She's, you know, just a, a lovely young girl who now has to deal with this her whole life, the pain and the and the other issues associated with it. And um, that legal case is moving forward. But what we're looking for now is inner city or urban community water consumers who um, are, you know, who have this stuff on their teeth, who want to make us think about it. And uh, they deserve to, because frankly, you know, this affects your psychology, your, your social interactions. I have people tell me that they won't smile. They have a hard time going to job interviews because what this did to their teeth, they don't like to smile. It makes their personality sort of more closed in, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, in your state, I believe uh, fluoridation is required. But that doesn't mean you don't have to tell people about the effects. You know, just because a thing might be mandated or allowed by law doesn't mean you have a, a, I'm no attorney, but what I understand anyway, um, seems like you have a responsibility to at least disclose what the side effects are. I got another and, question for you here before I forget, Daniel. Is there any way to filter fluoride out of your system? Or is, I mean, you know, I mean, as far as your tap water, or is there like filters that will remove fluoride? Or is there anything that can be done other than just buying bottled water? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, the, the way to take it out of your drinking water, if it comes to your tap fluoridated, is there's a couple different ways you can do it. Um, you can use uh, the best way that takes virtually all of it out is something called a distiller. Um, unfortunately, they're not particularly cheap to get these, but you can get these countertop or undercounter sort of units, um, maybe for three or four hundred bucks, and that's not cheap. I recognize, but that's one way to deal with it. Reverse osmosis units will take out anywhere from 45 to 96 percent of it. Um, they're all different. You have to find out you know, which ones do better. Um, right. Don't just buy a osmosis unit. Um, interestingly enough, uh, there are also, one of the best ways to take out fluoride out of drinking water is to run it over what's something called bone char, 
any bone char. It's cow bones that they uh, charred. Mm-hmm. And um, bone char, the reason it, it's kind of sad because the reason that it takes fluoride out so effectively is the same reason why your your bones oh, absorb. It's absorbed, isn't it? Yeah. So um, it, it's very, it's not a very pleasant thought, you know, when you realize that the bone char is what takes it out. Um, uh, but you know, reverse osmosis has varying levels of effectiveness. Distillers are, are really good. Um, but all that has expense. And if you happen to be somebody who doesn't have the funding to afford that, or you can't buy the bottled water that's unfluoridated, what, you don't count? Um, you know, that's really what they're saying. Is that too bad? Suck that's it up, a shame. Take a, for the team. take a hit for the team. You know, that's what they're saying. And, and your kidneys can get messed up. Your teeth can get messed up. And, yeah, too bad. That's really what the de facto um, situation that's, is. That's absolutely terrible. I used to have a distiller, actually, and those do work good. But in the long run, you know, if you're not financially strapped, that's the way to go. Because, you know, if you figure the cost of all those bottled waters, distiller would pay for itself in no time. Right. Well, if, you know, if, if people um, feel the economic harm of this, I encourage them to talk to attorneys about it. And, and I've got, you know, somebody wants to call me or email me, I can hook them up with, you know, a law firm. Um, the, the thing is, is that people who are harmed need to speak out either economic harm or physiologic bodily harm. And those who are, who have, are in positions of influence with those who have the ability to end fluoridation, they need to get involved too. Um, positions of influence, meaning maybe, you know, some attorneys, maybe, you know, a journalist at one of them, um, you know, in a ma- large media outlet, um, the fluoride gate story needs to help. There's a whole investigative series that can be done on fluoride gate and people can, I'm not joking about this. There's, I'm not overstating it. There will be, I believe, Pulitzer prizes for people who really break this in a big way. Um, they have to be willing to take some hits, you know, get the dental societies and stuff. They may not be happy with these journalists, uh, but that's just the way it is. This thing is going to collapse anyway. It's getting very close to that. Um, and then people who are, like I say, people who are of means financially, who want to have a legacy, this is like the ultimate thing to invest in uh, because this is going to pay dividends and benefits for Americans and others for generations when fluoridation ends. Yeah, that would actually be an ideal thing if you're, you know, if you're older and you don't have a lot of family rather than leaving your money to a museum or a church, give it to a foundation like this and really, really have a purpose. Well, we're not, you know, we're not a foundation. We're just a small little company. Well, you know what I mean, though. But I mean, something like this yeah. that would have an amazing impact on future civilization, basically. Yeah, I, and I agree. I, I think that um, that people who really want to to see their money do something tangible and, and see the effect of it, to invest in it now um, is going to help your own family as well as people all over. And like I say, there's disproportionately harmed groups that uh, it, my conscience just, you know, when I see these little babies in inner cities, single moms, they go to their kitchen sink to make the milk for the baby. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're, you know, a black family or a Hispanic family, you know, it, 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 low income, no matter what, right. whichever, whichever race, if you're low income, you do that. This is just not right. And of course, the League of the United Latin American Citizens has now um, a, a great guy by the name of Henry Rodriguez. He had uh, worked on this issue, and the organization last summer passed a resolution um, calling for a halt to water fluoridation. That's the largest Hispanic civil rights, the oldest, I guess, the oldest Hispanic civil rights organization in the United States yeah. has called for a halt uh, to this. 
And of course, you've got people. We've been working with uh, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s family. Mm-hmm. Um, his daughter Bernice King has called for a halt to fluoridation. Alveda King, his niece, uh, Andrew Young, the former UN ambassador, he's called for a halt to fluoridation. Um, you know, talking about harm to black citizens. And so, it's just an absolute outrage. I mean, it's there's just no. I'll tell you, someone like me worries about it because I've lived in the southwest suburbs of Chicago and my entire life. And my gosh, 30 years plus, I was drinking that water. I actually moved somewhere where I had a well. But for 30 years straight since I was a kid, I was drinking that. Well, and I mean, I don't want to unduly get people unduly concerned about it. But the fact of the matter is, um, this is not helping us. We know it doesn't help your thyroid. It does not help your, and in many cases, it can harm your bones and joints and thyroid and your pineal gland. Um, The science is there or certain aspects of it. Other aspects that should have been investigated have just never gotten any attention because anybody that ever looked at it was ostracized. But now we've got some really reputable people, thousands of health professionals and others have signed a petition for ending fluoridation. And, you know, there's some great websites, good information uh, available for people. There's a book out, um, a couple of books out that people can get. Um, And so a lot of this, um, you can arm yourselves with, with the facts. You know, other cities like just north of you there, Canada has had a wave of towns and communities bailing on fluoridation. I mean, Calgary has ended it. Um, Quebec has ended fluoridation. All kinds of places. Even here in the United States, this growing number of cities and communities are rejecting fluoridation. That's what I was just going to ask you. In the United States, what are the effects? How many are people actually stopping it now? Cities, towns, states? Places like, you know, College Station, Texas, the big university down there uh, uh-huh. in that town. And, um, uh, you know, other places around ta- around the country have had referenda or the city councils have, have voted to end it. Um, Pinellas County in Florida has, has ended it, 700,000 people there. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of places right now that have an opportunity um, because of the concern over the legal risk management issues. If you're a rate payer of a water district, you don't want your water rates to go up, I'd be contacting your water utility and saying, you know what, um, you need to end this fluoridation thing because it's harming these people's teeth and they have a right to sue over it, you know. Um, so there's, there's a lot of uh, reasons to, uh, for, to get involved in things people can definitively do rather than just say write a letter to the editor. Nothing wrong with that, but you really have to get people who have the authority to do something and ask, ask them questions and, and hold them accountable, saying, I've now provided you with this information. It can be proven that you've been given this information. Um, do you want to just uh, fail to warn after having been given this information? Failure to warn is a big deal, and that's why people disclose things when they have a product or they have a recall, right? So um, there's a lot of reasons when you've got these big corporations tiptoeing away from chloride, uh, the cities need to be the next ones that do it. So well, can I give you my phone, my email? Yeah, I was just going to say, Daniel, we're, we're running low here now, uh, but give any information you want, your website again, and any contact information you'd like. Sure, sure. Um, our website is spotsonmyteeth.com. That's www.spotsonmyteeth.com. And um, you can email me through the website, but I've got a better email. It seems to work a little easier. It's my, uh, I'll give you this one. It's stocking2 at yahoo.com. My last name is Stockin. It's like stocking with no G at the end of it. So it's S-T-O-C-K-I-N and then a numeral two, 
stockin2 at yahoo.com. And uh, if you want to call um, the Lilly Center, um, I'll give you a, our, uh, I'll give you a number you can call. It's 706-669-0786. That's 706-669-0786. And people and, uh, can call you with any concerns or questions or anything pertaining to the fluoride then, right? Yeah, so we would love for people to get involved in any of these ways. If you've either got fluorosis on your teeth or you have, um, if you have uh, some financial means you'd like to get involved, that would be wonderful. But if you're a kidney patient or a diabetic or a member of a, of a, a disproportionately harmed minority community, maybe you're Hispanic or black and, and you know, black citizen, maybe you have heard what Andrew Young has said on behalf of the black community. Um, I just think that would be really wonderful. Okay, and for all our listeners out there who've wanted to do something, here's your opening. Here's his phone number, email address, all the information. There's no excuse not to help. And, you know, the other thing is to get the fluoride gate um, scandal, just add, help add momentum to it uh, being spread around the news about this. If you have connections with law firms or with media outlets, um, tell them they need to investigate fluoride gate. And they can contact me, and, and you know we can provide information for them. Um, there's there's uh, places you know we take the like that bottle of Gerber water, mm-hmm. um, and take that in, physically put it in the hand of one of your water utility members, and they look at the smiling Gerber logo that's on there, and then it says uh, no added fluoride right next to it, and that ought to make people think. That's pretty hard hitting when you think about it. Well, when you put it in their hands, I've done this. And uh, I physically put one of these toddler cream toothpaste, and, and you, when you put it in their hand, there's something about having the t- sight and touch two senses together when you see it. Correct. Right there, um, it seems to really impact people and, and uh, encourage them to take action and, and uh, realize they're not alone in taking Okay. Well, Daniel, that has been very, very interesting talk, and I hope everyone's learned something about fluoride and the absolute dangers here. The reason, main reason I wanted to get you on is because you hear so much on the internet, and I wanted a, more of an authority person to actually set it straight, and I think you did a very good job of that. So I want to thank you for being on, and uh, actually, if anything ever happens again, got to contact us too, because we'll put you right back on for any sort of update. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Sunday at 7.30 p.m. Yeah.